0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter seven. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter seven, uh, verses one. And I'm actually going to read through verse eleven. Hebrews chapter one, verses, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter seven, verses one through eleven. If you're using one of the, the church's Bibles. Uh, you will find these verses on page 1004. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receive tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, as we come to this portion of Your Word, we... We humbly ask that that Your Spirit would be in and with us to open our minds and our hearts to receive Your truth here this morning. Give us understanding, but more than that, Father, give us love for Your Word, uh, that it might be to us that pure spiritual milk by which we will grow up in our salvation. May it be to us the source of living hope this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You heard me say at the beginning of the service yesterday, uh, I lost a friend, and the presbytery lost uh, a pastor and a, uh, a good man. Mary Lou lost her husband, and his children lost a father. When we encounter death like this, when it's unexpected, when it is tragic, when it is sort of out of the blue, there is this instinct that we have to, to reflect upon our own lives and to see just how fragile our lives really are. To think, you know, that could have been me. There was nothing that, that makes it make sense. It was simply an accident. It was simply... A tragedy, and it shows us that that we live, we take our breaths, moment by moment, day by day, only by the grace of God. There is, as Jesus Himself says, nothing we can do to add a single handbreadth to our span of life. We forget this sometimes. We we live in a sort of denial at times, but it's always true. And in those moments when we we come face-to-face with our mortality, when we come face-to-face with the fragility of our our lives, there's a a question that arises. It it arises especially for me as the the one called to preach this morning. I have to to tell you that that when I heard the news yesterday, when Sam called me yesterday afternoon, I, I immediately thought to myself, well, what am I going to preach on now? What text should I turn to? Because, I mean, how can I preach on a text like this? At a moment like this. How how can I I preach on a text about this esoteric, obscure Old Testament figure in the wake of, of such a tragedy? Even even before yesterday, all week, I was wondering, what am I going to do with a text like this? There are certain difficulties in Hebrews chapter 6, and and we tried to face those difficulties face on. But I will tell you, I I find those difficulties far easier to handle than the difficulties of a text like this, Uh, a text about Melchizedek, king of Salem. When I come to a text like this, I often have the, the feeling that I used to get when I would uh, watch uh, chess, high-level chess games. I would, I would watch these games, and I would watch the moves, and I would try to make sense of what they were, were doing, and then all of a sudden, one of, the, one of the sides would resign. They'd say, oh, well, the game is over. And I would look at the board, and I would try to understand, and I would, there was just no way for me to make sense of it. I, I had no idea what they saw that made them say, yes, now this game is over. There's no reason to continue. That's how I feel with this text sometimes. Like I would have no idea what the author saw in, Gen- in Genesis 14 that makes him think that this character Melchizedek is, is so important. And even as I try to make sense of what he tells me about him, I, I, I struggle, and I wonder... Does a text like this really have any hope of of bringing us hope in a moment where we are facing tragedy? Well, I want to suggest to you that it does. Certainly the author of Hebrews thinks that it does. Look back with me at chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. It's the first time that he mentions Melchizedek. And notice what he says. Speaking of Jesus, he says, Although he, that is, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What the author wants us to see is that Jesus, through his suffering, became the source of eternal salvation for all who believe. And he associates that with him being named a priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's there's a connection between Jesus being a priest like Melchizedek and being the, the source of our eternal salvation. If we will see Jesus as a priest like Melchizedek, then we will see him... As our hope. In fact, he said later in chapter 6, turn with me there to to chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. It is in seeing Jesus as a priest like Melchizedek that we find the sure and certain anchor for our souls. Notice, Notice what he says again. Again, speaking of Jesus, he says, "...we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." The people of the Hebrews, the, the, the ones who received this letter, they were suffering. Their, their suffering was different but it was just as real. They were, they were facing the trials and the tribulations of life in this present evil age. And as the author, of the, Hebrews, uh, the author of this letter writes to them, what he thinks they need to hear, what he thinks they need to know, the thing that he is anxious to, to teach them much about is that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so the challenge before us this morning is to hear what it is that the author wants us to hear, to to begin to understand why this is what we need to hear when we face the brokenness of this present evil age. So how does seeing Jesus as a priest like Melchizedek, how how does that give us hope this morning? Well, well, to answer that, we first have to know who Melchizedek is is, or who he was. Uh, he he gives us an introduction to him in verse 1. Notice what he writes. He says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed a tenth part of everything. He's, he's giving us, in, in summary fashion, uh, 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 a recording of, of what's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 14. Turn there with me. Keep a finger in Hebrews will be coming back, but turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. You've, you've probably heard this, of this character, Melchizedek, before, but you'll be forgiven if you don't remember all the details of his story, because Genesis 14 uh, is really the only place where his story is told. He's referred to, once again, uh, in Psalm 110, but that is as a prophecy of the one who's going to be like him coming in the future. And so this is the place where we hear of his story. And in the first half of this chapter, in Genesis chapter 14, uh, we have this account of these five kings who are going to war with these four kings. Uh, one of them had been sort of the dominant. He had held them all under his thumb. And then finally, uh, four or five of them get together and they decide, we are going to, uh, we're going to rebel against Chedorlaomer. We're going to rebel against the king who has held us in, in submission. And they go to war with one another. And the reason that this particular battle is of significance is because one of the kings involved in the fight was the king of Sodom. And you may remember that Sodom is the place where Lot, Lot, Abraham's nephew, had gone to dwell. And so Lot, Abraham's nephew, gets caught up in this battle. He is the collateral damage, so to speak, and he is taken captive when the king of Sodom's side loses the war. And so what happens? Well, Abraham gathers together his armed men, and he goes after his nephew. And because God is with him, his small band of armed men is able to defeat the army that the gathered kings were not able to defeat. And he, he rescues his son. And it's, We pick up the story at verse 17, because there we read, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer. The, and the kings uh, who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him uh, at the valley of Shaveh. And, and uh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. So there it is. That's the story. That's that's the entire account of Melchizedek. And so what is it about this obscure Old Testament figure? What is it about this this king of Salem that is meant to give us hope this morning? Why, uh, Why is he so significant? Well, what we notice is that what the author wants us to see is he wants us to see how great this man was. Turn back with me to Hebrews In fact, he he says that explicitly in verse 4. See how great this man was. What we need to see is we need to see Melchizedek's greatness. And and, and what do we find his greatness? Well, he gives us a a number of things. First, he tells us that he is the king of righteousness and peace. We we see this in verse 2. Melchizedek was the the king of, of righteousness and peace. He is first, by translation of his name, the name Melchizedek is a name that means King of Righteousness. That's what the name means. Now, we don't often associate uh, much, we don't often give much significance to to names. My name, Philip, means lover of horses. I can tell you that I have been on a horse maybe two or three times in my life, and I didn't love it. And so, um, you know, I'm not a lover of horses. That's not why my parents named me Philip. They had a friend who they named me after. But in, in this day, the, the, the name of someone was, was meant to reveal something about who they were and, the, and the, the purpose of their life. And so here is one who is the king of righteousness. He is what a king is supposed to be. He's a king who brings justice. He's the king who, who puts things right. And not only is he a king of righteousness, but he is a king of... Of peace. It's what it means to be king of Salem. Salem is, is, is uh, an echo of the, the Hebrew word for peace. So he is a king of righteousness and he is a king of peace. He's a king because he does right who brings flourishing, who brings shalom, who, who brings God's peace to bear for God's people. He is what a king is supposed to be. He's a king of, of righteousness and peace. But more than this, he's also a priest. But notice what it says about him. He is a priest without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He, as we said, he just shows up on the scene in Genesis chapter 14. We have no history. We don't know what comes next. Are we supposed to take this literally? Are we, are we supposed to, to, to think that he literally had no father and mother? Are we supposed to think literally he had no descendants? Are we supposed are we to think literally that he, that he had no beginning and no end? I don't think so. There have been some who have, who have taken it that way. They have, they have assumed that this was maybe a, a, a manifestation of God himself. Maybe it was the pre-incarnate Christ. Maybe it was the angel of the Lord. There, there have been, been some who have speculated that way, but I don't think that's what the author is, is getting at. Rather, he wants us to see that, that in his obscurity, in the fact that, that he has no genealogy, that his, mother, his parents are not named, in this he resembles the priesthood of Christ. That's what he says. He, he says he, he resembles Christ in these things. But, but why? Why are these things important? Why are these facts important? Well, well, think about what it means for a priest not to have a genealogy. Think about what it means for him not to have Parents who are named. It means that he is a priest not by virtue of his birth. He'll say it explicitly a little later on. He is a priest not by virtue of bodily descent. He didn't inherit this priesthood. But rather, he was appointed to this priesthood by God himself. He was made a priest, not by some regulation of the law, but directly, immediately, by God himself. And the fact that he has no end of days, and the fact that he doesn't pass on his his own priesthood to his his children, the fact that his children aren't mentioned, the fact that he has no no genealogy, tells us that, that this priesthood, was a priesthood that was, was not to be given in serial order to one generation after another, but rather it was a priesthood that was to be forever. It was a, a glimpse of what the priesthood of Jesus was going to be like. And why is that so significant? Why is it so significant to to see that this is not an inherited priesthood, that this is not a a temporary priesthood? Why why is that so significant? What are we supposed to learn from this character, Melchizedek? Well, what we are supposed to see is that his priesthood was not like the Levitical priesthood. He was different. He, He gives us a picture of another type of priest. He gives us hope that there might be a different type of priest. He gives us hope that there might be a better priest. In fact, that's the main point that the author wants to make here in this text. He wants us to see that Melchizedek, as surprising as it is, this obscure Old Testament figure, is actually a better priest than the Levitical priests. He he drives this point home in in another way. He drives it home by by telling us that Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham and gave a blessing to him. Now we might expect that to be the other way around. After all, Abraham is the father of of God's children. We are children of Abraham if we are in Christ. He is the father of the, the covenant. And yet... He was blessed by Melchizedek and paid tithes to Melchizedek. It's all to, to show us that he was actually greater than Melchizedek. That's the, that's the point that he is trying to, to drive home here. Notice what he, he says, that it's, it's just sort of assumed, it's understood. It is taken for granted that the one who gives the blessing is the superior. And so if Melchizedek is, is blessing... Abraham, he is greater than Abraham. And if he's receiving tithes from Abraham, that means that he is greater not only than Abraham, but he's greater than the priest that came from Abraham. Because the Levites received tithes from their brothers because they were God's appointed priests. And yet, they paid tithes in Abraham to Melchizedek. They weren't receiving, they were... They were giving. And that all seems like just uh, you know, an ob- obscure fact of history to us, but the author wants to make much of it because he wants us to see that this shows us that Melchizedek was a greater priest than the, Le- the Levite priests. And the reason that is important is because it gives us hope that one day, one day a priest who will be everything that Melchizedek foreshadowed will come. One day, an even greater priest will come. And why is that so important? Why is it so important to see that that Melchizedek was greater and that Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek? Well, that's the point that the author is wanting to to drive home. We'll, We'll explore it much more fully next Sunday. But for now, simply look with me at verse 11, because this is where he makes the point. Why? Why is it important to see Melchizedek as great? Why is it important to see Jesus as as a priest like Melchizedek? The reason that it is important to see Jesus as a priest like Melchizedek is because of what he says in verse 11. Perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood. Next week we'll we'll look at a whole series of of things about how the Levitical priesthood fell short. But but for now, just focus on that one phrase. Perfection was not attainable. The Levitical priesthood could not bring perfection. Why? He says it because the Levitical priest served under the Mosaic law. See, there's this constant question in the the history of the Old Testament. Is God's covenant promise conditional or unconditional? Maybe you've wrestled with that question yourself. Because it seems that he comes and he gives this this, this promise to to Abraham. And, and And he says, this is what I am going to do. It seems absolute. It's it's confirmed by an oath we heard last Sunday. It's it's God's unchangeable purpose. And yet, in the Mosaic Covenant, all of the blessings of the Abrahamic Covenant are tied to the law. And, And Moses says it as soon as he gives the law. He says, listen, you can't do this you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to to keep this this law. And the priests aren't going to be able to bring you to perfection. What can they do for you? They can can forgive your sins, they can offer sacrifices, and they can then send you back to the law. You see, that's that's all that the the Levitical priests could do. They could, they could offer sacrifices and they could send you back to the law and they could say, try again. Do better. Try harder. And so it leaves us with this perplexing question in our minds. How can, can God swear right, oath, this is what I will do for the children of Abraham, and at the same time, tie all the blessings of that covenant to the Mosaic law? It seems like there is this unmeetable condition on this hand, and then over here there is this promise of what he's going to do. And it leaves us confused. Is it it conditional or is it unconditional? Which is it, God? And I think the best answer to that question is to say that, of course, the covenant is conditional, but it's guaranteed. It's conditional. There are conditions that, that must be met, but it is guaranteed. God, by the power of His grace, will meet them. And they won't be met just by giving us a second chance. The Levitical priesthood points to what we need, but it can't really deliver. We'll see this next week. It, it can't deliver because those, those priests, they, they, they have to keep offering those sacrifices again and again and again because the people don't stop sinning. Every time they send them back to the law, they, they bring condemnation upon their heads again. Probably sounds familiar. It's where we all live. There are people who who think that the gospel is God giving us a second chance. It's God wiping the slate clean uh, and, and, and giving us a chance to do better. If that is your gospel, it is a gospel without hope. If all you have is the Levitical priest who can send you back to the law, you have no hope. We need a better priest. We need a priest like Melchizedek. We need a priest who who doesn't pass on his priesthood from one generation to the next because there's never going to be an end to the need of the sacrifices they're able to offer. We need a priest who can offer a sacrifice once and for all time. We need a priest who has his priesthood not by virtue of bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. We need a priest who can actually bring us to perfection so that no further sacrifice is needed. And that's the priest that we have, and the one who is the fulfillment of Melchizedek, king of Salem. We have the one who is the king of righteousness and peace. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Because at the very end of chapter 4, Jesus Christ has been delivered up for our sins and raised again for our justification, we, having been justified by faith, now have peace with God. Jesus is the King who brings righteousness and peace. Not in a, a temporary, imperfect way, but perfectly. He is the priest, not like the Levitical priest who can simply send us back to the law, but he is the priest who fulfills the law for us that he might bring us all the way to God. He is the priest, as we saw at the end of of chapter 6, who entered behind the curtain as a forerunner. That means he went there for us. He went there so that he might take us there. He went there so that he might bring us back into the very presence of God You see, Melchizedek was a a hint that there is a better priest than the Levitical priesthood. Yes, it was obscure, but it was a hint and it was a hope. And it is a hope that has now been perfectly fulfilled in Christ, the King of righteousness and peace. The King who has made us righteous and given us peace. The King who by the sacrifice of his own life has put an end to all sacrifices because his sacrifice never needs to be repeated, because his sacrifice did what the Levitical priesthood could not do. It has made us perfect. It has made us perfectly righteous. And one day, it will conform us perfectly to the image of the glory of our our brethren, who is Christ, who is the Son of God. This is the hope. This is the hope that is ours through the one who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it's this hope that is our sure and steadfast anchors when the winds of trouble blow in this present evil age. I don't know what your troubles are this morning. I don't know what turmoil you find yourself in this morning. I don't know if, like me, you have recently lost a friend or a loved one. I don't know if like, if, if your trouble is something else. If, if you are, are struggling with, with a, a marriage that is under pressure or a family that seems to be pulling apart at the seams or, or you're in a job that seems to, to kill your soul you're, or you've lost some of your best friends through, through their sin or your own or some combination of the two. I don't know if you're struggling with your own body feeling the, the ravages of Of death. I don't know what your struggle is this morning, but I know that you're groaning because you you live in this present evil age. But in the midst of that groaning, we have a sure and steadfast anchor. And that sure and steadfast anchor is not that we have a priest like Aaron and his descendants who could offer sacrifices for our sins but then send us back to the law but we have a better priest. We have a priest like Melchizedek, a priest who can give true righteousness and therefore give true peace. And because we have such a priest, we have a living hope, even in the face of all that this world does to bring us death. Because death is a defeated enemy. And because death is defeated, through the resu- resurrection of our Lord. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness. We rejoice in Your grace. We confess to You that when we, we set our eyes upon Melchizedek, we're not quite sure why it matters. We thank You for Your Spirit, and we thank You for this book that remind us that Jesus is a better priest, He doesn't send us back to the law, but rather he takes us into your very presence. Father, may we learn to rest in him fully, and may we learn to let his peace rule in our lives and in our hearts, even as we face the grief and the trouble of this broken world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.